My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. It's Jeremy Fiaris, Peter Bereason. Peter, I, I mentioned that I have a little bit of history when it comes to BCA. When I was really young, like, you know, high school, middle school, because my father was an investment manager himself, he was a big fan of BCA. So we always used to get the the gray book mailed to us. And <laughs> my father always made it a point, always made it a point to ask me to read it and, you know, talk to him about what I thought was interesting. And I didn't know what I was reading, but it was sort of one of my first real consistent research introductions into markets. So I'm a big fan of what you guys do at BCA. Introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done the right career? What are you doing currently? Oh, well, thank you for that introduction. Yeah, BCA has been around since 1948. Now, I haven't been there the whole time. I joined BCA in 2010, and I actually wrote that little great book that you referred to for about seven years before moving on to writing the global investment strategy, which is what I currently do. Prior to uh, joining BCA, I worked uh, in Goldman Sachs in, in New York for three years on the global macro markets team. And prior to that, I began my career at the uh, International Monetary Fund, originally focusing on Asia, being involved in some of the uh, program negotiations with some of the countries in that region, and then moving to the research department where I worked on the uh, World Economic Outlook, which is the IMF's flagship research application. So on the global investment strategy standpoint, am I wrong in thinking that for the last 10 years, it's been a, been a pretty simple strategy, which is don't invest globally, just go into the U.S.? Uh, well, that's certainly been a strategy that's worked best. Whether it continues to outperform is hard to know. I mean, that same kind of line of argument could have been made in the 1990s, and it would have worked very well. Up until about 2001, and then we had a rotation into EM stocks, into European stocks. You know, something like that could happen. I certainly wouldn't would rule it out. Uh, but for the time being, my models do suggest that you should be overweight U.S. equities. The parallel to the, that rotation catalyst from the tech wreck, I think, is interesting, right? So that's when you ended up seeing small caps outperform. That's when you started seeing emerging market value style type investing working. Is it fair to say that to some extent you need to break tech leadership, you need to break tech momentum for flows to go overseas and to go into value as a style? I mean, it seems to me that until you have that end, FOMO will just rule the day. I think that's a necessary condition. It's not a sufficient condition. Certainly, if tech continues to outperform, that means the U.S. will outperform because the U.S. is just so heavy in tech compared to other stock markets. And I certainly can see a case for tech breaking over the next 12 months. The Magnificent Seven have gotten very expensive. And it's not at all clear to me whether those stocks will continue to enjoy the same sort of earnings growth that they have over the last few years. I'm old enough to remember that tech wreck in 2000, where companies such as Cisco, JD Uniface, Nortel, Lucent, but go through the whole list, kind of went from leaders to laggards pretty quickly. But the reason I say it's not a sufficient condition is because for value, for non-U.S. equities, to really outperform, we have to see more earnings from some of these parts of the stock market. And I have to say value in particular has not done well, largely because value stocks increasingly are kind of low-quality stocks, companies with high levels of debt, unstable earnings, low profit margins. And that has been a handicap and will be a handicap, certainly if we go into a recession 
at some point next year, which is my expectation. All right, so, so let's get into that because I think that's interesting in terms of running up against broader look, looking at cycles. So this has been a pre-election year. I'd argue it's been one of the most deceptive years in recent history, largely because, you know, as you noted, Magnificent Seven has been where all the rage has been, most stock after inflation are actually negative when you look at the Russell 3000 on a real return basis. Election years tend to historically be good ones for smaller cap stocks, right? From the studies that I myself have done, small caps tend to outperform in election years. They tend to underperform in pre-election years, but not to the same extent that we've seen this year. How do you think about uh, the idea that we are in a, a, a bull market and breadth will catch up to the magnificent seven if uh, indeed we're heading for a recession? It, it seems to me that the fundamental fundamentals will run up against the mean version argument. Yeah, I think that's a good way of characterizing it. I think this year uh, will probably go down as the worst year for small caps relative to large caps since 1998. Uh, so there's certainly scope for a mean reversion in 2024. I think what potentially will hold back small caps is, again, kind of a recession. Small caps tend to be more cyclical. They tend to be uh, more reliant on bank financing. And of course, bank lending standards have been tightening now for over 12 months. Lending rates are quite high. And I think kind of the stimulus often occurs in election years, might not be forthcoming next year, simply because we'll have a divided Congress and Republicans are going to oppose any uh, fiscal stimulus that could help uh, Joe Biden next November. So let's talk about the um, the state of recession calls. Because mm-hmm. everyone last year said recession this year, and this year now everyone seemingly forgot about recession. There was a little bit of a uh, increased chatter as we were uninverting on the yield curve. And now that's gone away as we've, you know, back to where we are on the yield curve that we were prior to that. You sent me a note saying recession comes when nobody talks about it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Which I, and, and I don't necessarily disagree with that thesis. I mean, yeah, you don't, you don't know if you're a recession until it's already uh, underway. That's why the NBER is always, you know, late, right, mm-hmm. in terms of calling it. But let's face it, I mean, everyone always talks about everything, right? There's always going to be perma bears, perma bulls, you know, and, and the negative narrative does tend to get more clicks and more media attention. So, you know, there will always be a large number of people, I think, arguing for recession. Make the case for why uh, recession legitimately could actually come uh, next year. Yeah, I mean, going into this year, we're actually out of consensus in the sense that we didn't expect a recession this year. We thought that stocks would go up as markets increasingly shifted towards the soft landing narrative. And and then I think that sort of played out that we were always, you know, careful in saying that a recession would come. But our forecast was, has been now for a couple of years, that will come in 2024, probably in the second half of 2024. The reason I think that you can't really avoid recession is because once an economy gets to full employment and the U.S. is at full employment, you need to have monetary policy that's almost perfectly calibrated to keep you out of recession. Because if interest rates are a little bit too high, then the economy slows, unemployment starts to rise, and that tends to feed on itself. If interest rates are a little bit too low for what the economy needs, you can get higher inflation fairly quickly because you don't have much spare capacity in the economy, and that forces the Fed to raise rates. So if you look at a chart of the unemployment rate, you know, I just encourage your listeners just to pull up a chart of the U.S. unemployment rate. Look at how incredibly mean reverting it is. Usually it's going up or it's going down. It doesn't go sideways for very long. 
Uh, and usually when it gets to very low levels, as it is today, it starts to rise within a year or two. And I think that's what's happening now. The economy is moving slowly into recession, probably by the second half of next year. All those pandemic savings, supported consumption will be gone. Those high job openings that allowed workers who had lost their job just to walk across the streets and find new work. There'll be a lot fewer of those openings. And so if someone does lose their job, they won't be able to find a new one easily. They'll have less income because one person's income is another person's spending. Overall spending will decline and that will sort of feed on higher unemployment. So that that precision point, I think, is important and underestimated, I think, in most investors' minds. And being precise with monetary policy is hard for the Fed and for any central bank. I'd argue it's probably especially hard for the Bank of Japan. So I want to use that as a transition towards the yen and monetary policy when it comes to Japan. I have myself highlighted the risks for you know a few months here that it seems like there is a possibility of reverse carry trade as the BOJ maybe tries to somewhat normalize and normalization of monetary policy in Japan is a very different normal, right, than uh, the rest of the globe. Uh, but I want to hear your thoughts on uh, what's going on on the ground in Japan when it comes to inflation, debt loads, and their ability to be precise against as much debt as they have with inflation orders. Yeah, so we've... We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Called 2024 the year of the yen, uh, because we do think that the yen will be the best performing currency next year. Maybe not in the first half of the year, but certainly once uh, kind of the global downturn begins in the second half of 2024, that's when the yen will surge. Because at that point, the Fed is going to be cutting rates, the ECB will be cutting rates, the Bank of England will be cutting rates, everyone will be cutting rates other than the Bank of Japan, which never raised rates. So those interest rate differentials are going to mean in the yen's favor, even if Japanese rates don't move up very much. And of course, the yen is a very cheap currency relative to purchasing power parity exchange rates, which are these sort of fair value measures of exchange rates that compare the prices of a basket of goods and services across countries, sort of like a Big Mac index, just with all prices. The yen is super cheap based on that measure, as cheap as it's been at any time in its history, but 45% undervalued relative to the dollar. And as you mentioned, there are huge short positions in the yen because people have been using it as a funding currency. They've been borrowing the yen, you know, exchanging the yen into dollars, putting those dollars into interest rate accounts that are yielding 5% or so and making a good carry trade. But at some point, that carry trade blows up. You get a massive short covering rally in the yen, and the yen spikes. Now, people are worried about the debt issues that you highlighted. I'm worried. I think you have to be worried. But I'm not as worried as I, th- as I think most investors are worried for a very simple reason. If you think about what's kind of happening 
in Japan, why Japanese government debt is so high? The answer is largely because you've had now close to three decades of deflation in the economy where the private sector simply wasn't spending very much. In fact, the private sector was a big saver in Japan for the last three decades. And so the government had to basically take those savings and absorb them in the form of a higher uh, fiscal deficit. So if you look at overall wealth in Japan, the household wealth in Japan for the share of GDP is much higher than it is in the United States. Japan is a very wealthy country, just that the government is in debt, and that debt is just the offset of the private sector assets. So if we reach a point where Japanese households don't want to save, they don't want to buy those JGBs, uh, yes, at that point, bond yields could go up. But at that point, the need for the Japanese government to run large budget deficits will also decline. And so you're going to get some fiscal tightening, which I suspect will keep rates from rising too much and also tame some of these concerns over excessive government debt levels. That three decades of deflation, though, I mean, I've got to assume that there's a, um, a cultural aspect to, to how people in Japan think about the economy. I get the sense that the, the, the population is not really prepared for a prolonged period of inflation. And it seems to me that if that's the case, because they've been, you know, to your point, more big savers, that's not only not going to change, but it's going to cause some societal frustration. It could. And I think one of the reasons politically it's been so difficult to take the policy steps to generate more inflation in Japan is because the older population you know, on fixed incomes, the kind of benefits from deflation. It increases their purchasing power, makes sure it ensures that their real value of their pensions doesn't decline uh, too much. Uh, but ultimately, I do think that Japan is going to have kind of more normal levels inflation. And if that happens, that actually would be potentially better for the debt dynamics, because one of the oddities about Japan for the last few decades is that while nominal rates have been quite low, real rates have actually been quite high higher in many cases than in other major economies because of that persistent deflation. So if you can get some nominal GDP growth stemming from higher inflation, that actually could help reduce that debt-to-GDP ratio. If the yen were to have a big move higher, is that more consistent with what you see in general with the recession in the U.S.? Is From a co-movement perspective, is that what you would see in a risk-off, high volatility, you know, higher probability of tail event type of a dynamic? I mean, I, historically, if that's been the case, it doesn't always have to be the case. But, you know, if, if that's the, in quotes, call, it sounds like that would also mean you're expecting broader uh, asset volatility. Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, the yen historically has been a very counter-cyclical currency, more so than the dollar, and even more so than, say, the Swiss franc. If you look at how the yen performed during uh, the Lehman uh, meltdown, if you look at how the yen performed in the first few weeks of the pandemic, when everything was uh, crashing down, the yen was the best performing currency of the lot. So if we do have another global downturn, especially one where other central banks are kind of cutting rates aggressively, you would kind of imagine that the yen will strengthen in that environment. So I do see the yen as, as one of the better hedges out there against uh, a possible global downturn next year. How does that interplay with treasuries? Yeah, there, there is this other narrative out there that, yeah, if the, if the BOJ is going to defend the yen to some extent, right? And, and 
normalized policy that that means they have to mechanically sell treasury to do so. Talk about how the interaction of, of Bank of Japan's interventions impacts the U.S. bond market. I mean, it has some effect, but I would say that it's sort of a second order effect. I mean, what really drives treasury yields is the market's expectation of where the Fed funds rate will be over the next few years and uh, beyond. And a key reason why bond yields rose so much in the third quarter this year was because we had very strong growth. GDP growth was close to 5%. And that convinced a lot of people the Fed wouldn't need to cut rates as aggressively next year as they had previously presumed. And more importantly, the Fed would be able to maintain relatively high rates even after uh, any recession. So the market estimate of the neutral rate went up. That has really nothing to do with Japan. It's certainly true that foreign buying and foreign selling has an impact on treasuries, but it's not a huge impact. Uh, people, I think, overestimate what's going on here. You hear a lot of stuff about how China is not buying uh, U.S. treasuries anymore. But if you look at Chinese holdings of treasuries, it's about 2 2.5% outstanding treasuries. It's just not a huge number. Japan holds more treasuries, but again, we're not talking about big numbers. So, so that's a different view. I don't know if I disagree with it than, with, than the uh, view that the reason you saw such a sell-off in, in yields is because of, of you know, government spending accelerating and, and these kind of you know, weak auctions. I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between. The challenge I have with sort of the argument that the reason yields have risen so much is because of strong growth is it hasn't been reflected in you know, small caps, consumer retailer stock. You know, I understand the zombie company dynamics, obviously, but you'd expect that strong domestic growth would translate into better relative performance of, you know, domestic sense of equity. So you would, but there, there was an offsetting factor, which is as growth accelerated, bond yields rose. And because those smaller companies are more indebted, they have more short-term debt than larger companies, they just are much more sensitive to that sort of uh, tightening in financial conditions. Uh, so the growth helped them, but the resulting tightening in financial conditions hurt them. So there was a bit of an offset. But going back to this question about kind of fiscal dynamics, obviously, if you look at the projections for U.S. government debt to GDP, it's on an unsustainable trajectory. No one will deny that. But the point is that this is something we knew for a long time now. In fact, if you look at the Congressional Budget Office's projections of the primary budget balance, the debt to GDP ratio, you know, they put these out every six months. Uh, back in 2021, the CBO projected an even worse debt to GDP ratio path for the US than what it projected most recently. So the point is not that it's sustainable in the US, it isn't. The point is that nothing really has changed over the last two years to make the debt profile even worse than it was back then. And of course, back then, the 10-year Treasury yield was 1.5%. So again, I think fiscal matters, but in this case, we're overstating. And the other point that I'm just sort of make around and this whole supply-demand balance that a lot of people talk about when it comes to Treasury yields is that the Treasury Department has a lot of control over what maturity of debt that it issues. If it finds that there is less appetite for longer dated bonds, you know, bonds with maturities 
an extension of 10 years. You know, just issue fewer of those and issue more treasury bills. And the yield of a treasury bill, because of arbitrage conditions, is basically dictated by whatever the Fed funds rate is, not dictated by supply, demand, imbalances. So I, again, you know, I understand these arguments. I just think investors are putting a little bit more, a little bit more weight on them than is justified. Just to reset the room for everybody that's here for the meeting minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Peter here on X. And if you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms, Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. Speaking about treasuries, I always go back to the treasuries from a buy and hold asset allocation yield play. And then there's treasuries as a trade play for you know, a flight to safety sequence, speaking about the yen, right? Historically, you correct me if I'm wrong on this, when you have one of these risk-off periods where the yen is running, treasury yields tend to drop and duration tends to do fairly well during that flight to safety. Are you bullish on treasuries from a yield, buy and hold, this is the top perspective, or are you just looking at it more as, you know, this is something to overweight for a moment in time? I would say a little bit of both. Like, I was very bearish on treasuries, I would say up up until about maybe late September or so. And then when yields got up to 5%, we flipped. We went from being bearish to being uh, bullish. And, you know, we advised clients put on a long TLT trade. And that's been working very well recently. Personally, I put about a quarter of my, uh, of my brokerage account into TLT. So I do see owning bonds as a good hedge against a coming recession. Because, of course, when we have the recession, the Fed will cut rates, bond yields will decline, and you're going to be able to offset some losses on your stock portfolio as uh, the value of those bonds appreciates. Now, I do think that there is now a longer-term case for owning treasuries. Certainly, if yields stay above 4%, that's a decent return. Uh, the Fed can manage to achieve a 2% inflation target, which is not given, but if it can do so, you're going to get a pretty decent positive real return on owning treasuries, which is not something that you could have said a few years ago. I, I also think it's interesting that people seemingly forgot that the government needs negative real rate to, to deal with its debt, right? And which means the Fed doesn't have to necessarily lower rate. It can just be you know, other dynamics that, you know, push money into treasuries just to for the government to get what it wants, right? As far as having that that rate be less than the rate of inflation. How do credit spreads play into that? I, I keep going back to this point, and I stress this as often as I can, because I think this is where a lot of people get things wrong. Treasuries are not a hedge to the stock market. They're really a hedge to credit spreads, which is what makes them a hedge to the stock market, right? In a kind of very Dr. Seuss way of thinking about things. Yeah. Talk, talk about credit spread, because that's been the one thing that's been missing. Everybody can, from here tomorrow can say they saw stocks and bonds would sell all together, but it, could they have said credit spreads would stay as tight as they were? I'm not so convinced. Yeah, so credit spreads, you know, narrowed over the last few weeks or so. And at this point, our benchmarking exercises suggest that the current level of spreads basically implies no further increase in the default rate on corporate credit. The default rate has been rising on corporate credits. But if current spreads are any guide, the default rate won't rise anymore. Now, that's plausible if we have a soft landing. But again, that's not my base case, my base case 
is for recession. So I do think that earnings to grants will widen. And so within fixed income portfolios, you should really favor treasuries over over spread spread product. I've also seen them in three studies around the link, which makes sense cause and effect wise between bankruptcies in the private economy and then default risk repricing through credit spreads. As far as things outside of public debt markets, are you seeing that there's been broader, you know, default repricing in private credit in, in when you see some of these bankruptcy numbers, do they give you some some concern that it's only a matter of time for this to kind of spill over into public markets? Oh, yeah, you're starting to see that now, both in private markets and in kind of the broader data on default and delinquencies that the Fed and other bodies published. So I would say over the last you know, year or so, there's been a clear uptick in the delinquency rate and the default rate in corporate credits, in commercial real estate, especially anything to do with office towers, delinquency rates are going up there. And that process will continue. Only about a third of leases that were signed before the pandemic have expired. As those older leases expire, uh, what you're going to see is that landlords are going to end up with less rent, less floor space that is in demand. So CRE, I think, is in big trouble. And we're also now seeing clear evidence of of pain in the consumer sector, like auto loan, credit card delinquency rates are trending higher. And that process, I think, will also continue as households run out of pandemic savings. I think JP Morgan had a note out a few weeks ago where they observed that they're seeing much more sensitivity amongst their client base in terms of discretionary spending and its interaction with gas prices over the last year or so. As gas prices have moved up, they've been fluctuating a lot, but as they've moved up on occasion, you saw discretionary spending come back down. Whereas that wasn't true uh, last year and the prior year, back then households could sort of maintain their discretionary spending, even in the face of rising gas prices, because they had those excess savings. Well, they don't have as many of those savings anymore, which means that consumer delinquency rates will rise and consumption itself will slow and that will help precipitate a recession. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit to AI, not because I love NVIDIA, but I've been referencing uh, this disconnect in the idea that AI is, is going to take over the world and that it's going to be disinflationary against yields that have been rising uh, on longer duration, right? Because I think there is, I think if you're bullish on AI, you almost have to, by definition, be bullish on bonds mm-hmm. uh, because technology is disinflationary. And I, I take issue with all these, you know, arguments that say, well, you know, rates are going to go to 10, 12%, like the mid-late 80s. It's like we forgot that technology shifts the entire yield curve, right, from that perspective, from an efficiency standpoint. It, it, how do you think about AI in the context of uh, longer-term secular inflation, disinflation, or even deflation? Yeah, so there are a lot of structural trends out there that could potentially lift yields, and some like AI that could lower yields. So in terms of the trends that could raise yields, you know, you've got an aging population. Baby boomers are going to be retiring. They've accumulated a lot of wealth. They hold over half of U.S. wealth. 
So they're going to be going from saving to dissaving as they retire. And that can kind of push down overall national savings, leading to higher bond yields. We've got deglobalization. Globalization, of course, is a very deflationary force. But now that's on the back. But so a lot of these things are potentially inflationary. AI, I think, is one of the big deflationary trends, along with potentially you know, prolonged weakness in the Chinese housing market. But AI really does stand out as the major deflationary force. And I am quite, you know, I am quite bullish on the potential of AI to radically change society. I think in some sense, investors are making the same mistake thinking about AI that they made in the early days of the pandemic. They're thinking linearly when they should be thinking exponentially. AI is on an exponential path. It has been for a number of uh, decades. It just hasn't been noticeable up until recently because of the exponential nature of that transformation. So if you think about a, think of a machine, for example, that has an IQ of like one to begin with, then it doubles to two, four, eight, 16, 32. Now, 32 is still pretty dumb, like the IQ of a chipmunk, maybe. But you're only at that point a few doublings away from superhuman intelligence. And I think AI now is finally on that portion of the exponential curve where you're going to see major breakthroughs. And that probably will push up productivity. And that probably will have a deflationary effect. Now, does that mean you should run out and buy NVIDIA? Not necessarily, because it's not clear whether NVIDIA will remain the leader than it currently is. If you think back to the dot-com boom that we discussed earlier, productivity growth in the U.S. basically began to accelerate around 1995. And then it sort of tapered off in 2005. It really wasn't until 2005 that internet companies really figured out how to monetize the uh, internet. So there was basically a gap like 10 years between when the internet propelled productivity growth higher and when the profits finally arrived. So if you're now thinking about investing in AI, even if the productivity impact occurs soon, the profit impact may not occur for a few more years, in which case you could see a pretty nasty drawdown in some of these high-flying AI-related stocks. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. Also, if, if a, I guess it's ultimately a question of timeline also with this. I mean, going back to disconnects, if AI is going to be this great productivity enhancing longer term technology, then maybe some of these zombie companies do survive because they could squeeze out, you know, more from their relatively reasonably thin margins. Right, implementing some of these systems. That's, I mean, potentially, yes. But I think the kind of worry that one might have as an investor is that AI will be so disruptive 
that today's winners become losers and today's losers just get completely thrown off, off the rails. That's a possibility. And then, you know, I, I, I worry about some of these companies that everyone just kind of assumes are going to benefit from AI. We think about Google uh, as an example. Suppose you have an AI that is not just good, but great. Like you, if you go online, you can say, I want to travel from like New York to Houston. Tell me what the cheapest flight is going to be. And if the AI is good, I'll tell you, okay, here's the ticket that you want to buy. Here's the flight. Well, if it's an honest AI, it's not compromised. It'll tell you what the cheapest ticket is. Uh, so there's no real incentive for the airline company offers that ticket to advertise because if the honest AI is going to tell you what the cheapest t- ticket is anyway. And of course, the companies that offer more expensive tickets won't advertise using this AI platform because they're not going to be uh, chosen by the AI. And so there's just no incentive to advertise at all. And so the, the irony is that Google makes a lot of money because its search engine is good, but it's not great. You still have to kind of go that fast of clicking on a bunch of links. If you have an AI that does all that for you, and how does Google make money, right? So the point that I'm making is not that AI will be bad for investors. I think it will be good for investors. But rather that the current business models may have to change substantially before companies can monetize AI. And it's not at all clear the current suite of companies will be the ones that kind of lead that AI revolution. Although if, going back to that point about exponential versus linear, I mean, the, you can argue... I think that the existing companies that are at the forefront of AI, because they're so far ahead in terms of time, that exponential nature means it's nearly impossible to unseat them, I would think. I mean, it's possible. It's possible, but of course, plenty of counterexamples. You know, I'm old enough to remember in the late 1990s when AOL was just like the only game. Everyone had an AOL connection. and sort of just presumed that a head start would allow it to maintain control of the internet. And of course, that didn't happen. The fact that Yahoo was the first true internet portal didn't help. And the fact that MySpace was displaced by Facebook. So we have plenty of examples of incumbents with first mover advantages still managing to blow it. And I would guess that a large share of today's high-flying AI-related companies will also be superseded by other companies, many of which might not even exist today. I am curious that at, at BCA, have you guys been using um, some of these these AI tools? I mean, it, it, there is this, this thought out there that AI is going to replace you know, analysts and researchers in general. Uh, just internally as a company, what have you guys been doing? Yeah, I mean, it's something that uh, we're now in the process of uh, doing. I mean, we have a huge database that literally includes millions of proprietary data series reports that we've written over the years on thousands of different topics. So what we're trying to do is create an AI engine where clients can go to our website or to the app and basically kind of interact with it the way that they would interact with ChatGPT. What does BC think about this? What does BC think about that? And get a coherent response uh, in real time. So that's definitely something that we're working on and something I suspect that many other companies are working on as well. Going back to the the global investment strategy focus, are there any really interesting, compelling non-U.S. investments that you think people should 
maybe put their readers on. I mean, the emerging markets just seemingly can't get out of their own way. There can be great valuations in companies, countries like Brazil, but again, there's no real compelling momentum just yet. Are, are there some parts of the global landscape that look really intriguing to you right now? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly there are going to be countries, maybe smaller economies that will benefit from the geopolitical rifts that we're seeing today between China and the U.S. So we've liked Mexico, for example. In fact, uh, just over the last few months, U.S. imports from Mexico began to exceed those from China. So, so you have companies, we have countries like Mexico, like Vietnam, for example, that are kind of really benefiting from the, the movement of industrial capacity from China to other locations that are seen as a little bit more politically safe. So I think that's a theme that has long, long legs. Uh, in Europe, you know, we talked about kind of how non-US has underperformed. You know, people are very pessimistic on Europe. They have been for many years and justifiably so. But I do think that there's a case to be made that the worst is over for European equities because the European banks are finally in decent shape. You know, back in March, there was all this concern when countries failed and U.S. regional banks were failing. And the perception back then was that this would kind of spread throughout the whole European banking system. You know, Deutsche Bank stock crashed for a few days and then it kind of recovered. And I think the reason is that at this point, European banks are actually pretty good shape. You look at their tier one capital ratios. They're higher now than in the U.S. and certainly much higher than where they were a decade ago when Europe suffered major debt crisis. So if European banks you know, structurally are on a stounder footing, that could support the broader economy over the remainder of the decade and perhaps even imply that European banks, which of course have been a horrible investment, could actually do well over the long haul. I wouldn't be buying them right now because I think we are heading into a recession. But if your horizon is five to 10 years, that might be something that makes sense. Yeah, it's actually when you look at EUFN, which is the European Financials ETF as a proxy, I mean, it's solidly outperformed the US Financials XLF yeah, really since December uh, or so of last year. Yeah, and kind of stayed in line more recently. I've had a few people on these spaces argue that the ECB is likely to lower rates much sooner than the Fed. Uh, Europe, the Eurozone likely is, you know, in a broader recession before the U.S. Um, how do you think about just um, economic slowdown potential when it comes to Europe versus uh, what could be coming for the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, in general, the global business cycle is quite synchronized and it's particularly synchronized on the way down. That is to say, when you have the U.S. weakening, everybody tells, tends to weaken in tandem. In fact, often the weakness is much more pronounced outside of the U.S. than in the U.S. So I would imagine that we'll have a broad-based global downturn, again, starting the second half of uh, next year. Will the Fed cut before the ECB or vice versa? That I don't know. Uh, you can certainly make a case that the ECB should cut a little bit uh, earlier because uh, underlying trend growth in Europe is lower than in the U.S. and European economy just generally has much more exposure to the banking system than uh, the U.S. economy, which relies a lot more on, say, kind of capital markets or financing. But the thing is, 
prices and wages tend to be a little bit more sticky in Europe than the U.S. Uh, inflation was slower to rise in Europe. But when it did rise, it reached very high levels, partly because of the energy crisis. So I think the, the, the ECB, which, which unlike the Fed, only has one mandate, which is inflation. The Fed has two mandates, inflation and unemployment, but the ECB only has one. The fact that inflation is still running high in Europe might limit the ability of the ECB to cut rates aggressively and proactively. There was some concern by some that you know, maybe we would see a repeat of the 2011 pigs crisis, but this time not with Greece, because Greece has actually done fairly well, admittedly, with a lot of help over the last several years. But with these higher rates in Italy and Spain, why, why is this time different? Why is it not the same type of dynamic in terms of what we saw back in 2011? I mean, it might not be different, right? Uh, but that, that, that's the concern. Certainly, if you look at Italian debt levels, they're, you know, no, again, up lower now than they were a decade ago. In fact, they're higher as a share of GDP. Uh, what is different is that the ECB is much more willing to step in and buy the bonds of some of these troubled economies to prevent the yields from blowing out. Because what, what happened a decade ago was that you had this vicious circle where Italian bond yields rose, that made it more difficult for Italy to service its debt. And so the perceived risk of default went up. And that caused yields to go up even more. So it was kind of this self-fulfilling crisis. And the ECB under Mario Draghi stepped in, pledged to buy those bonds. They actually never had to buy any bonds. They just pledged to buy those bonds with Draghi's famous whatever it takes statements. And yields came back down. So that pledge, or at least that implicit pledge, is still there. So they do have a little bit more resilience thanks to the ECB. But clearly, over the long haul, Italy in particular will have to take concerted efforts to reduce its debt levels. And it's not entirely obvious whether they'll succeed. In. Peter, for those who want to track more of your thoughts and work, where would you point them to? And, and maybe talk about BCA and you know, the type of audience that, that tends to gravitate towards you guys. Yeah, so BCA is the world's biggest provider of independent macroeconomic research. And I stress the word independence, but we don't sell anything other than the research. <laughs> so our views are as unbiased as you're going to get. And we've been around for a long time, since 1948, I believe. And we cover all assets, all regions, all time horizons. And what we really try to do, unlike some other maybe providers of economic research, is really marry the macro with the markets. So all of our report have investment conclusions. It's not just reading about where unemployment and inflation is going. There's always a section that says, okay, here's what's going to happen to unemployment inflation, but here's how you make money off it. So we try to kind of be very relevant for the financial team. Everybody, please make sure you give Peter a follow here on X. I personally, I'm not getting paid to say this. I personally have always been a fan of BCA. They've got some really phenomenal research. So if you're not familiar with them, I encourage you to learn more about BCA. And uh, hopefully all of you will enjoy Thanksgiving. I will do so without uh, cranberry uh, on my turkey, as okay. I keep saying here on it. Thank you, Peter. Really do appreciate it. Have a great day and happy Thanksgiving. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, 
or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.